I've written uh, more books. One is called Brass Ovaries on Yours. So uh, as you can probably figure out, and actually it came out before the whole Me Too uh, movement before Hillary was running for president, but it was uh, a book leaning in of mindset of women and what we deal with in the workplace um, not from a harassment standpoint, but in life of how we perceive ourselves and how we're labeled and how do you sort of move uh, beyond that and move into zones of having a good, instead of a good old boy network, a good old girl network and how do you maneuver, you know, through that from a business perspective. Um, and then uh, since then, I, everything that I write is really about workplace culture and how to avoid, you know, business big fat failures uh, that are hidden inside of the workplace culture. And so that's kind of been, you know, the difference. Sean Dustin spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. Upon release in 2006, he had nothing but the clothes on his back, a bag of mail and legal paperwork. In 2010, he kicked a longtime methamphetamine habit and started the long climb back up the ladder of life. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. If you want transparency and authenticity, you're in the right place. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and this is Sean Dustin. What's up, everybody? Thanks for stopping by the show. I'm Sean Dustin. I'm the host. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. If you're returning, welcome back. It's good to have you with us. Uh, today is September 23rd. It is a Tuesday. Um, subscribe. If you are listening on Apple or any of the... Uh, podcast platforms that I'm on, please subscribe. Please subscribe to the show. If nothing else, if you don't want to, you know, help support the show in any other way, just at least subscribe to the show. That way it'll help boost the ratings and everything else and get me more visible. Um, you know, but that's if you are, you know, enjoying what I'm putting out there. If you're not, then, you know, sorry. Uh, maybe at some point there'll be something in my catalog that, that you might find interesting, but you know, this, this show, what it's really <laughs> seems to be turning into is, uh, basically it's, uh, it's, it's me figuring out how to be a better me, um, through bringing people on to help me do that. Um, you know, sh sharing other people's stories to help me kind of understand my own, <coughs> ah, excuse me, I gotta, got this cough, man. It's driving me nuts. Not the COVID cough, but um, it's uh, it's just another uh, another cough. So, anyways, what else do we got? Um, rate review if you want to. Um, you know that always helps. At least it gives me a, a uh, like a, a guide as to how I'm doing. You know, by getting feedback from everybody else. Um, also, if you want to talk to me, reach out, talk to me. Uh, email the show. Uh, you got uh, topics, people that you want to hear um, on the show, uh, or see if I could maybe try to get them on the show. 
uh, reach out that way. Um, nowhere to go but up now at gmail.com. Uh, you can also, you know, if you want to help support the show in any other way, like monetarily, uh, if you want to subscribe to my Patreon or, uh, just shoot a tip, uh, if you, you know, think that I'm <laughs> doing a good job and, and, you know, Hey, keep up the good work at a boy, uh, shoot me a tip through uh, PayPal and that's NorCal drone services at yahoo.com. Um, you know, that's my old, uh, old email for my, my drone business or my old, my old PayPal account for my drone business. So other than that, uh, today, what I have for you is another really great conversation. Um, it was, uh, Shelly Smith. She is a, um, workplace culture, like guru ish. I mean, she's super, uh, super overachiever. Seriously, like she has seven books, uh, two podcasts. Um, you know, she's got her own coaching business, I believe, as well. Uh, you know, and she did all this without a college education. So, I mean, she is definitely um, an inspiration. You know, somebody who's out there doing it uh, and you know, blazing her own trail. So, you're going to enjoy this conversation. There is a lot of good information. Uh, she just kind of lays it out there on how workplace culture is. And, <coughs> uh, excuse me, man. You know, um, and then you know me, I, I'm always asking questions and, and we end up in other places. One of the, one of the interesting parts of the conversation that we have is, uh, how, how the shift, you know, because she works with a bunch of uh, corporate uh, corporations and different companies and stuff like that, and the shift in how people are working, uh, we get we talk a little bit about that and and what that's looking like and and what the landscape of that could look like. So definitely worth taking a listen to. Uh, yeah, and that's it, man. Uh, I hope you enjoy the show. So let's get to it. You're listening to the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. Here's your host, Sean Dustin. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and I'm your host, Sean Dustin. Today, I'm talking to Shelly Smith, who is a published author of six books. Also, she has a couple of podcasts, uh, The Culture Hour and The Morning Commute, and uh, she's here to share all about herself today. How are you doing, Shelly? I'm good. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing all right. Good. So tell me. Uh, tell me about your books. Tell me about your podcasts, and uh, tell me about your story. So I'll start with that. That's a lot. So I'll start and you can lean in as much <laughs> as you want to. So I'll start with kind of the, the book piece, I suppose. Um, you know, I started my consulting business. It's now I'm in my 11th year. And one of the things probably a couple of years into it, <clears throat> one of the clients that I was serving was having me bring in people. Um, it was It's a leadership series. And throughout an entire year, and we would have themes. And more often than not, um, the client would have me go out and get people who were recently published, you know, best-selling and so forth. So I always knew that I needed to, or always thought that I needed to be validated through a book. 
And so I was always a person who did a lot of videos, even before videos, and did a lot of different writing and different, you know, guest speaking pieces. And I always knew that I needed to pull a book together. So a couple of things happened uh, a couple of years into the business. And I realized you need to do this now sooner rather than later. And so I took a series of, of blogs and videos that I had transcribed because I'm all about repurposing, you know, any content that you put out there. And I, I put together the first book and the first book was called The Connection. And my intention around the book was never to um, become a famous author by any any way, shape or form, but was to have something that I could point to for people to say, this is what I'm about. You know, a little bit of what is my jam? What is my passion? What is my zone of genius? And the connection is not about, even though there is one chapter on networking, the connection is really about understanding everything that we have around us on a daily basis and how we need to lean in and connect to them. So there's dedicated you know, chapters towards that. So that was my first book. I did it really quickly, like in 45 days, um, because I had so much written content. I pulled it together, you know, got an editor and, and uh, self-published it and put it out there. Since then, uh, I've written uh, more books. One is called Brass Ovaries Own Yours. So uh, as you can probably figure out, and actually it came out before the whole Me Too uh, movement and before Hillary was running for president. But it was uh, a book leaning in of mindset of women and what we deal with in the workplace, um, not from a harassment standpoint, but in life of how we perceive ourselves and how we're labeled and how do you sort of move uh, beyond that and move into zones of having a good, instead of a good old boy network, a good old girl network, and how do you maneuver, you know, through that from a business perspective. Um, and then uh, since then, I everything that I write is really about workplace culture and how to avoid, you know, business big fat failures uh, that are hidden inside of the workplace culture. And so that's kind of been, you know, the different plateaus with that. As far as the podcasts go, the morning commute is a daily dosage of Monday through Friday, little five minute snippets with the intention of the people who are sitting in traffic, which nobody's sitting in traffic anymore, but uh, <laughs> metaphorically sitting in traffic. And they just need that focus point uh, as they go into their work, you know, as a leader, as an executive, as an employee around workplace culture. So I do little snippets around that. And then the culture hour is uh, literally 20 minutes to 45 minutes on talking with, with guests about what they're doing inside of their workplace culture. So sometimes it's a lean in in sales. Sometimes it's, you know, a dive in into emotional intelligence or, or resiliency or what have you. So those are, you know, the couple of things. Um, how I got into this business itself, you know, I'm going to try to give you a short version of it. I um, grew up in an entrepreneurial home. I had no idea because that term wasn't used then back in the, the early 70s. I've been working since I was probably, I don't know, 11, 12, or 13. And my parents, they had a, a, an auction house and a, a, uh, a restaurant and a flea market. And I worked there on the weekends. And I didn't appreciate it then, um, but I certainly appreciate it now. And so, you know, I grew up in a home where my mom had a day job, so to speak, but she was the bookkeeper and did all kinds of things for uh, for the business. And then I, my dad always said, never, ever, ever work for anybody else. It took me uh, several years to figure that out, that he was right. So, you know, probably the biggest struggle or the part of my story that usually intrigues people that quite frankly, I just got comfortable telling 
was that I do not have higher education. So I do not have a college degree. And so here I am running a business at seven figures, uh, primarily one person. How in the world did I do that? And how am I creating, um, you know, internal universities at uh, inside of large businesses? You know, how, how is that kind of transformed? So going through my early years of what I grew up with and for that you could always do something and be passionate about what you do and be creative into my years with Marriott, primarily in the hospitality industry for most of my career, actually all of my career before starting my own business. And then really waking up and realizing it was never about the brick and the mortar. It was always about the people. It was always about the culture. I just didn't call it that then. Um, until about 10 years ago, I really started leaning into, you know, culture matters and, and I wish I would have trademarked that and I didn't. And now everybody's using it. Um, so anyways, that's kind of where I, where I was and why I've done what I've done and how I've kind of getting there, gotten there. And so I'll, I'll stop and pause for a second. That's an important thing. Uh, workplace culture, cause that can really make or break your company, right? Yeah. And, you know, companies are, it's always been important and critical, vital, whatever word you want to use. But I'll tell you right now in the midst of, uh, of COVID-19, the companies that are doing it right are really rising to the occasion and their, their team members are leaning into them uh, together and they're, you know, innovating and surviving and thriving. And the ones that aren't are frozen. And when we come out of whatever this is, that we're in, they're going to be uh, left behind with even more difficult time finding employees who want to work for them because they've damaged the, their reputation internally and externally. So, yeah. Yeah, we're in for, huh. the, I, I keep telling people um, that we're, this is the easy part that we're in right now. Uh, this is like, is yeah, this is like the, uh, this is like the honeymoon period, you know, everybody's, uh, getting paid, uh, or working from home or on unemployment or your disability, which I'm on. I mean, at some point we're all going to get back to normal and go back to work. However, whatever that's going to look like, I mean, we don't know quite yet what that's going to be, but I mean, really what's happening is everybody's seeing a different way of doing things. Yes. You know, from the zoom, uh, working from home, uh, schooling from home, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious because I work in, I'm a construction, I work new, uh, commercial construction, new, new, new construction mostly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I live in the Bay Area. So, I mean, a lot of work in the South Bay, Silicon Valley startups, uh, a lot of, a lot of building things, but I don't know if that's going to be as lucrative. I mean, they're still going to be building, but I don't think it's going to be as lucrative because as companies are starting to see that we don't need this much space. Yeah. Building new construction may, may come to a a standstill. You're absolutely right. Regardless of whether it's, you know, class A through uh, B or C space, it's definitely going to take hold. I've already started having conversations with a lot of clients when they look at their bottom line and they look down to the EBITDA and the things that are falling below on the profit on the statement, that, that rent, that lease piece is a huge chunk. And to your point, the companies that thought that they can never allow, they did not want to allow their workers to work either flex time or virtual, and, and they were adamant about it, no, no, no. And now, you know, they were told that they have to. 
it's amazing how all of a sudden you can make it work. I've got a couple of clients that have call centers and they literally moved um, 3,000 people into remote and having all of the tools, the resources, even we're talking about primarily not much more than employees making minimum wage, right? Your call center agents don't make a lot of money, but moving all of them off. And so now to your point, those big call center cubicle to cubicle, desk to desk are being rethought um, either from phasing people back in to um, the ones that really need to be there because of tools or resources or, or they need to be managed and led in a different way in phase one coming back. But where maybe you had a thousand people, maybe now you only have 250 or 500 people. You're laying it out differently because if the crisis happens again, if it would have laid, been laid out differently, you know, the social distancing could have happened, you know, inside of the building. And then the ones that have the employees who are more effective, uh, efficient by working remotely have risen to the occasion. It's almost like I told you I could do it. Now I'm showing you I can do it. I don't want to come back in, you know, and, and I'm a better employee because of it. So it's already happening. I know my clients are already having these conversations. I know as we talk about, you know, the cash flow inside of businesses, um, you know, people who are publicly traded, privately traded, they're looking at these things of what else can we do differently and what do we not need to do um, that now we've embraced embrace the grind and the innovation, if you will, for it. I, I can almost see this playing out as a, as you're saying, as, as they're figuring out how to repurpose these spaces um, and the, the people that are, are essential to have to be there. Um, and then the ones that you bring in, I think it's almost, it, it would almost be like a, a reward system. You yeah. know what I mean? So, you know, you, 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 come in with a company, you come in, you get trained, you're in the, in the space that you have to be. And then you are working to attain uh virtual, virtual employment. You know what I mean? So you got to prove yourself. And then once you prove yourself, then you can shift over into, into working from home and whatever that looks like. And you have your people that are like your IT, your, you know, things that have to have a space to be in, to make all of the, the home virtual stuff work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the conversations are so different now from how people are communicating. And, and again, to your point of what they could perceive to be possible. And it's amazing what we can figure out and what we lean into when we don't have any other options. That's what's always interesting. You move from, I can't, I won't, that's not possible to, well, it's interesting when it's not an option, what all of a sudden can become, you know, possible inside of that. So it's very interesting to, to watch people figure it out. I've got one client that happens to be a longstanding uh, lumber. Um, they've got a, a manufacturing of the, the logs when they come in, in Maine. And I was talking to him the other day and they did not close down. You know, obviously you cannot <laughs> yeah. do what you need to do the trees by being at your house. You know, it's not an option, even though it's not an essential piece, they've got different components because they, where they ship out to for the construction pieces. But he said, it's amazing. Uh, two two points in this. He or, was already leaning into the concept of shared leadership. He already understood the value of involving everybody inside of the decision-making process, regardless of what your position was. So I, I do want to preface, he was already pretty agile and leaned into that, but he didn't figure out 
how to do it. His team figured out how to keep all the locations open and to keep people doing what they were doing from flex hours to dispersing where they had the equipment to do what the equipment needed to do. Um, it was it was amazing to hear him articulate it. And obviously he was really proud of the team and he knew that they would figure it out. But who would think that a manufacturing type of company who has their equipment hardwired and set in and people are on an assembly line that you could figure that out? They figured it out. So it's really, really interesting. Yeah, it's uh, and, and then this is just one this is just one aspect of it. And you have the school portion of it. Uh, yeah. where the students, I mean, now you, do we need these big schools? Do we need all of that space, uh, you know, for, for schooling now that, that you can, in, in a lot of, in a lot of these, uh, a lot of these sicknesses, uh, things that are passed, uh, and brought home usually come from your kids, you yes. know, going to school and, and, and bringing that stuff home to you. And then now the whole family gets sick. Uh, I know that that's a good thing. I mean, it helps you to build antibodies and that, and that's definitely what we need. We can't live in a bubble because if that happens, you know, it's not, uh, uh, it just, we, we need to be able to be exposed to some of these, uh, some of these sicknesses and stuff, but, uh, mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's going to be, uh, interesting how it all unfolds. It, it is. And, and from the K-12 through the higher learning piece, to your point, you know, I think what's made the, the kids having a struggle. So I've got um, one that's uh, in the Navy and they're actually um, he's actually quarantined now before he does the boot camp piece. So they they've got him holding there in order to do that. And then my second child is a senior at Virginia Tech. And so she's obviously finishing the rest of her degree online. And then I've got a 15-year-old who's a freshman. So it's really interesting to see and to listen to them go through what they're learning and really for them to talk about what they're not learning. But the key is they they weren't prepared. Um, There wasn't anyone in any of those sectors, private or public, who thought through any sort of a crisis ever happening to this magnitude because it's never happened before. So they weren't prepared. They're highly inconsistent. The kids are not learning because they were never taught how to learn in this manner um, and they didn't choose to learn in this manner. So I think that there's going to be a, a fine line to your point of how do we still bring them in and collaborate? How do we bring some consistency to how it is that we teach from the video to the Zoom to the chalkboards to, you know, how do students turn in their homework and their quizzes and their standard learning higher tests that they need to do? but also the ability to really lean in to collaborate. So again, the the students that chose to go to a campus because they wanted that experience versus doing their degree or their two-year degree online through a local community college. I read an article yesterday that was written by um, one of the presidents here of a community college, and he had done some publications a few years ago, always challenging what would the next 10, 20, 30 years look like as it, as we talk about uh, universities in person or not? And his point was always around the cost, uh, you know, the rising cost of a degree uh, versus an online degree and what is required, what is not, what is a value, what is not, you know, what is the return on it um, in the life experience versus, you know, the piece of paper, so to speak. And so he pulled that out and compared to where we are today. And it's going to be very interesting to see where where it all lands. I've already seen several smaller private 
colleges and universities who have said they probably will not recover and will not be able to reopen in the fall. And so that's, it's interesting yeah. uh, to see what's, what's going to happen. So. Yeah. My, I, I'm thinking what would be, what would be interesting because with all of these, uh, you know, some of these, these schools, uh, public schools are overcrowded and you see, um, teachers not able to, um, be able to teach the way that they should, you know, because yeah. you, you have, you have different, um, different levels of learning abilities within a, an, within a classroom, right? So let's just say you have, you know, some of your students that can, you know, would probably benefit and, and would do well to be homeschooled and, and, and do the virtual thing. Whereas you have other students that, that would probably need to, that, that would be, uh, better served, uh, in person, you know what I mean? Cause they, they need that, that level of attention. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that this would probably be a good way to, uh, kind of address that, you know, so mm-hmm. everybody's getting, getting educated in, in the way that they need, uh, being served up. Yeah. You know, and then you bring the economics and the the household differentials into play um, because you obviously can't have all of the kids homeschooled when there's no parents at home. They have to leave. And, you know, they don't have a job that can be a virtual job, you know, a telecommuting job. And you have that dynamic. You know, I, um, I, I think that part of this also has reinforced the need that parents have to be involved in the education, regardless of what level the education piece is, that you can't uh, think just because you're in school that you're no longer responsible for the education component for your child. Um, You know, I I know my, my freshman, when he was probably in the seventh grade, maybe the sixth grade, he had some homework that I quite frankly could not figure out. You know, people laugh about the new math. There seriously is a new math (laughs) out there. Um, and so it got to a point where I, you know, my husband and I could no longer help him. And we leaned into the two older kids to be able to figure it out. Um, now with this online piece and the teachers doing it differently, you know, I'm getting the daily communication from the teacher with what they're communicating to my son. I'm getting the same thing. And I love that. My son doesn't love that, but I love that. <laughs> of what's due, what we're doing. Is it a Zoom call? Is it live? Is it recorded? You know, what have you? And and so it's brought us back in as parents, you know, intentionally. And this now partnership, which obviously it should have always been between the teacher, you know, and the parent. But he had math homework again. And which, by the way, math is my forte. Yeah. So I thought <laughs> he um, I got a message from his math teacher and said, hey, there was an assignment due yesterday. I'm going to leave it open for a day. So, of course, I went to my son and said, what's going on? And he finally admitted, I've watched the video from the teacher four times. I don't know what I'm doing. So I was like, all right, come to my office. Let's figure it out. (laughs) So I just went to Google and pulled it up, literally typed in the problem that he was being asked, watched the video a few times, muddled through it with my son, and we we figured it out. Um, So it's again, it's really, it's really interesting um, how that sort of brings it together. And it, it allowed for a different conversation between myself and my son and the math teacher. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, I think that's, that's awesome. I think it's amazing that you, you know what I mean? It's bringing, it's bringing you back into the equation. And, yeah. and, and at the same time, it's also, 
building building a stronger foundation with your kids. Yeah. You know, because now you're involved. You know, you're yeah. you're both learning something. You you know you you can't pass it off to the teacher. You're involved in it, which you should be, anyways. Um, yeah. And then, and it's just, yeah, it's, it's cool. And then, you know, with that relationship builds trust, which also builds your, your kids now feel like they can come and talk to you. Well, also it was that I, well, I think I was more excited that I helped him figure it out than he was. <laughs> he was just happy to get to the 70 on both of the homework assignments so he could stop doing it. But uh, it, it was an opportunity to say, we can problem solve this together you know, what, what have you done? What have you not done? Where are you stuck? Uh, stuck, you know, stuck in this equation. And, uh, and, and to show that the answer isn't just, you just, there, the option isn't to not turn in your homework. So let's just take that off the table. <laughs> right. You know, in yeah. his mind, it was homework. It wasn't a quiz. It wasn't a test. And I was like, but that's not an option. So let's just remove that. And let's talk about what we can do. And I think, you know, that goes to how we act in life is we get so stuck and riddled on what we can't do, which kind of goes back into our earlier conversation about companies saying that I cannot have remote and teleworkers. It's amazing what happens when you, you don't have any other option. So anyways. Yeah, but you're also you're also training you're training him to not put things off. Yes, I hope that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Well, I mean, because normally, I mean, if you're, you're, what would normally happen is if he didn't do the homework and he did go to school, then, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe not. You don't, you don't get a, a call from the teacher saying, Hey, why isn't, you know, little Johnny's homework done? You know, why, why, why isn't this happening? You know, and sometimes it, it may happen. Sometimes it won't, you know, and things could get, it could turn into a problem if you're, if the teacher yeah. is dealing with a bunch of other issues and Johnny's really not that big of a problem. It gets put on the back burner, right? And so True. now you're you're dealing with it, and uh, yeah, I think it's great, man. I think it's great, and it's it's a po- it's a net positive for the the whole situation. For the whole, yeah, yeah, I, I I agree with you. I don't, you know, I don't think all the kids are aware, fully comprehending what's happening. They just know that they're not seeing their friends in person, um, and they're not comprehending what the change is, and that the teachers are are far more lost than they are in this because they, they, um, they weren't taught this when they got their degree. Uh, we were talking about that last night as well, is that the teaching degree of the future is going to include how do you deliver virtually, whether you think you're ever going to or not, you know, thinking through these crisis modes in order to prep them because they, they didn't have to do it before. So, yeah. Um, and, and we're also seeing this and I'm, I don't want to get into like a political thing, but we're, we're seeing, we're seeing across the board, okay, and everything that that's happening, uh, that shit just ain't working. <laughs> yes. You you know what I mean? It's just it really it's not uh, the yeah. the old methods that we're used to uh, doing. Oh yeah, that's just the way we've always done it. Well, how can you do it that way? Oh, that's the way it's always been done. I mean, you know. Yes. We get stuck in that in that rut in that uh, in that mode of thinking, and this has really pulled people and pulled covers really covers of why are why can't we now? You know why can't we yeah. do that? Why you know we're I, I think it uh, the way that I, I put it is the way that we do things as a society, a government, um, you know everything that that's been built. 
into our system, technology has crashed it because there's like, there's a clash. There's a clash between how fast we're going now and everything else can't catch up. Government can't catch up, uh, state, local, whatever you want to call it. All of these systems that we have in place are way behind the technology and how fast it's going. Mm-hmm. And so we've kind of been forced, uh, which is a good thing, forced to step back, take a look at it. Um, and, that, and I think that's what plays into a lot of people's conspiracy things. It's like, you know, well, this has got to be done for a reason. You know, somebody's doing this for a reason. Uh, you know, but I think it's just, honestly, I think it's just a coincidence of the, of the, the time that we're in and trying to figure out how to merge technology with society. And to embrace it yeah. and to embrace it. You know, there's so many to your point, um, Fear when you hear two letters now put together, AI, people start to freak out for all kinds of reasons. And there's also, you know, there's the artificial intelligence side and then there's the the automation side of AI and just understanding how it can help us, you know, whether it's friend or foe, so to speak. But you're right. You know, a lot of this is people are, are paralyzed for the most part. And it's it's like that bell curve of early adopters, whatever that officially is called, you know, the people who the earlier adopters are on the top and over the side. And those are usually minute amounts, but the ones that are going to like watch and wait is the next big wave. And then you've got those people who are really the late adopters in this. And I think what we're seeing through this crisis, because it's a worldwide uh, pandemic that's frozen everyone's, we have the masses of, of this wave of people that are just, watching and waiting to see what happens. And we just have a few people who are stepping out there to kind of see um, what's going to work and, and what's on the other side of the mountain, metaphorically on the other side of the pandemic, you know, to your, to your point, I think that everything, the perfect storm has literally happened. It's crashing in the midst of all of the technology pieces um, as, as well as obviously having a, a pandemic. And apparently we're going to have, you know, a wave two and people are already losing their minds. I cannot imagine what's going to happen if we have a wave two. Yeah. Um, and also another, another piece of that is, uh, you know, government and how they're responding to it. And yeah. I mean, this is, we're in a, we're in an election cycle. Yeah. You know, so that's, dude, we've got three big things happening all at one time. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the election, it's going to be interesting to see what happens and what that stirs up on whether I, the argument, I'm sure my prediction is whether we will or will not have the election is going to come up at some point. I, uh, I feel pretty confident. And then how we're going to do it and was it doing equally and fairly? And oh my gosh, it's, you know what? You opened up with something that you're right. I've thought it. I hadn't said it, but you absolutely said it is that we're in the easy days. This is like when, um, you know, going back to my pregnancy days, I, I tell new mothers, new women who are newly pregnant, the 10, it's 10 months, not nine months. That is the easy. That's the easy. Trust me. You don't worry about the morning sickness and all that, that drama and you're tired. You ain't seen <laughs> nothing about I'm tired yet. So you're right. This is the honeymoon stage of what is to come. 
and the book hasn't been written because we haven't been there yet. Um, so everything's new. Uh, you and I both share, uh, let me make sure you're the, the right person. I see. Yes. You and I both share, uh, a common, uh, a common a commonality here. We're both Roganites. Roganites. I don't. Joe oh, Rogan. Oh yes, yes. You know, I have to admit, my oldest son turned me on to his podcast. So I watched, you know, back in his his acting days and whatnot. But he's the one who turned me on to to his podcast. And at first, I was like, man, these are some long podcasts. <laughs> But you kind of get addicted to him in a really big way. So yes, yeah, he's a uh, he's amazing. Uh, he's one of the reasons yeah. why I started a podcast. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, I, lis- I listened to him for a while, and uh, you know, I was already at the beginning of my sort of transformation and, and thought I'd already you know was out of prison, was you know doing you know not addicted. Well. You're always going to be addicted, but like the drug of choice was gone, you know, time and time and consistency away from the substance and, you know, things were going up, life started going better. And, but yet there was still something that was missing. Uh, there was still something that was missing from my equation and why I couldn't progress, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, it, it, listening to him and all the different people on his podcast, which, you know, it, he has a, a, a giant, selection of different people with different topics and different things. And so I would go and listen to uh, his episode with uh, Jordan Peterson. Then I I would follow Jordan Peterson and I'd, you know, go down a rabbit hole with him. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sam Harris, another, another guy that I would listen to, um, you know, from, it's just everybody that I listened to uh, religiously came from him. Yeah. And so yeah. I just, you know, I was like, well, damn, you know, I should probably, I want, I want to do that too, you know, cause you know what happens when people spark, spark something in you. It's like, oh my God, like yeah. everything that everybody always told me, it's like, oh, well this person, I don't even know him. And, and you know, he sparked something in me. So yeah. Well, that's how I got turned on to Goggins as well. So it was through him listening podcast. So yeah, to your, to your point, it does, it does stem right back to him. So that is, I never thought about that until you said that. Yeah, so, he, he's he, he's a catalyst for a lot of things right now. Yeah, and it you know what to to me it all comes back to the mindset shifts, and he's really he's really good at pulling out um, golden nuggets of of what stopped people in in asking in a really great way of how did you get over that, um, especially when he can tell there's an additional nugget inside of there. He just like keeps chipping away at it, and then all of a sudden. He gets the, you know, his guests to kind of give the big reveal. And then he's like, there it is. It's like, boom, I dropped it. So, yeah. Have you heard uh, the latest one? Well, not the latest one, but one of the ones with uh, the guy who wrote the book about the, uh, what was it? The the killer, the the, the, uh, Manson about Charles Manson. I mean, I know what you're talking about, but no, I have not. So there, yeah, so there's a guy that wrote a book about it and been doing research on it for about 20 years okay. and, and how the MK ultra, uh, stuff with the CIA and how, you know, the mind control deal, uh, and, and, and so this is people, I, somebody was talking to me about this and they're like, oh, okay. Conspiracy theories. All right. Whatever. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Normally I would say yes, but since 
I've been listening to Rogan for a while now. He does he doesn't he doesn't go down those holes. He's yeah, he really good about about like mm, no 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 I'm not I'm not unless he's sure about it. He's he's not fucking with it, right? So true. It is so true. I was I was sitting here thinking he calls BS in a heartbeat. That's what I was sitting here saying. Or if he sniffs it, it's like I, I sniff something funky there. I'm not going to go. <laughs> yeah. And so this this dude was just basically a. Lays it right out there, you know, and, and actually has the proof, uh, found documents that collaborate, 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 uh, what, what he's talking about. And, and I'm still not done with it. And I actually might have to go and restart it because it's one of those ones that you, you can't just keep stopping and going. You have to listen to yeah. the whole thing through. I'll have to go look it up. Yeah. And so, I mean, this, this goes into, you know, what I've always uh, thought about, you know, our, our, our government and not just ours, all governments, uh, do fucked up shit to their own population. They do. And, and Lord knows there's a lot of conspiracy theories that are happening right now inside of the government around the COVID-19. I've heard, I've heard so many, it's ridiculous. Yeah. That one, that one's hard to put that, that one is definitely difficult to put a, put, something on because you, you just don't know. I mean, it could, it could have, it could have been anything. There's a, there's yeah. a number of different uh, people, uh, companies, corporations, uh, whatever you want to call it that are, are, that are benefiting from this. And then there's a lot that aren't. So who knows? Uh, I think, I think the, the, you know, it'll come out in 20 or 30 years. Like it always does. Like it always does. After everybody is dead and gone or <laughs> no longer cognitive or yeah. like, and then there's going to be us old people going, we lived that. We know it. We know it. I told you. <laughs> oh. uh, one of the other things that I want to kind of touch on, because you're, you're in that uh, corporate, uh, corporate setting, corporate world. Um, one of the, the hardest things uh, that somebody who, um, is a worker. Okay. Let's just say a worker. That's, mm -hmm. you know, whether you're blue collar, essential, non-essential, uh, wh whatever it is. All right. There's something that you can't deny. All right. And that is, uh, the, the inequality and the gap in, in wealth that's accumulated, uh, by the corporations, by the big ones. I'm not talking, I mean, there's a lot of S corps and, and smaller, uh, uh, companies out there, but I'm talking like the big ones, like, uh, you know, uh, Boeing, um, what's another one, you know, any of those ones that, you know, in the, in, in the big pharma, you've got all of these huge conglomerates, right. That mm -hmm. always seem to, uh, get bailed out, mm -hmm. uh, by us. Mm -hmm. the taxpayers. Mm -hmm. um, but yet we don't get, uh, we, we don't get to share in any of that profit, but we're, we're, we're helping you. We're, 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 we're bailing you out. We're giving you the bandaid that you need to continue. Yeah. Um, how, well, I mean, it's, I, I just don't understand it as somebody who, who I'm, I'm not obviously not a corporate person, never been, uh, never wore a suit and tie to anything in my life. <laughs> uh, but what I do know is that my labor does make somebody a lot of money. Absolutely. And 
I, I really feel in my heart, all right, that right now is the time that for the worker, for the for the average American person that's out there uh, struggling, that that works every day, works hard, sometimes sixty hours a week, sometimes seventy. Three jobs, two jobs, whatever, whatever. Just you, to make ends meet. Yeah. Just, just to make ends meet. And why can't we ever seem to get any further ahead? Why, why, why is that? You well, know? I don't have a short answer for that. Um, that's a, it's a, it's a lot to unpack. You know, my background was definitely a simple background, very small uh, town in southern Indiana that I grew up in. Um, the house that I grew up in has been demolished. As a matter of fact. Um, you know, uh, the haves and the have nots has been here since, you know, since the beginning of time, um, the Middle East still fights over very dramatically the space of the haves and the haves not. Um, so I, I certainly don't have any answer to that, you know, we definitely have a capitalistic society. And of course that is a, an opinion, um, because that is not my professed, you know, background, but when you, you have a, a overall a capitalistic society inside of the businesses of the people who have the names and the power and the money in order to back it up, you end up having a wider spread of the haves and the have not and those that are caught in the middle, you know, of that. You know, the bigger the companies there are, the, the greater the red tape and the greater the errors and the um, unethical modes happen. You know, when I look at when I do culture inquiries in really large companies versus smaller companies, the dynamics are always different to what is happening and where the, I call them leaks are inside of the workplace culture. Opportunities are repairs that need to be made. And they're always dramatically different. The bigger the company, the more uh, ethical type things I seem to uncover or discover to your point of, of, um, unequal, doesn't make sense, you know, sort of, sort of things to your point. So I don't have the answers to that. I think it stems to, you know, the leadership and where the core values are, where the, where the ethical values are, where the moral values are, have a whole lot to do with all of that. Um, however, I will say another bit of a positive thing that I am seeing come out of COVID-19 is that regardless of size of company, regardless of how many employees you have, the, the owners and the executives are pushing a lot of the reopen now because they realize, they 100% realize to your point that their company only survives because of the workers, because of the employees. And there is no company without the employees. So, you know, that's part of that push, pull, regardless of what side of the fence you're on, I think. You can argue, you know, all the way around that until we're all blue in the face and we probably still don't have an answer. But I know that that has a lot to do with the dynamics. And and I've heard, again, some of my clients that had some, you know, less than $10 an hour or less than $12 an hour type of jobs where minimum wage is, you know, just a little over $7 an hour. Their employees who went immediately on unemployment because they had the incentive to get the unemployment plus an additional $600 here in the state of Virginia, that they were making more money if they just stayed home instead of being employed. And so now those companies, those employers are finding, well, maybe we need to look at how we bring them back differently 
to allow them to make um, more money and to safeguard both the company as well as a livelihood as employee. There's also more companies that are going to flat levels that everybody inside of the company literally makes the same amount. There's not a lot of companies out there, but there are a few that are beginning to shift that mindset and that they understand that every worker isn't, isn't, if the job is important to have inside of the company, the person that you hire for should be equal to the other employees, to your point. You know, back in my hotel days with Marriott, um, I had the opportunity, we did a, a few reorgs when I was with Marriott, but one of the things that I, I experimented in and ended up being approved, and I can't tell you, that was probably 15, well, more than that, almost 20 years ago, but my housekeepers, I was a general manager at a courtyard hotel, uh, so a select service uh, brand inside of Marriott. And the housekeepers, the front desk clerks, the cooks, the dishwashers, the housekeeping aides, you name it, they all had an opportunity to make the same money, uh, the same hourly wage. Now, when I started this, that was not true. The front desk clerks made more than the housekeepers, made more than the housekeeping aides, made more than the servers. The cooks made more than anybody who was in the restaurant setting. So what I did was I developed a program that said, you know, this is the normal wage scale, which I just described. However, if you want to uh, do this cross training, if you're able to do these other shifts, if you're able to read this book and do a presentation, if you're able to, to mentor, whatever, I gave a litany of things that said, you can make more money if you do X. And that puts you in another category of more of a universal type of employee inside of the building. At that time, I probably had maybe 60 employees um, in, at that one location through all the positions. I, I did that for while I was there. I was there for about a year and a half. It was very successful. I had some opt out of it and said, no, I'm good the way, you know, I, I understand. I, I want to be a desk clerk only or a housekeeper only or so whatever. But the ones that opted in, I ended up with about a third of the staff who opted into the program on their own. And many of them have gone on to do other things in management or have continued on. But, you know, being able to give that opportunity, it cut down on people think, oh my gosh, how do they, you know, how do they agree to do that? Which at the time a server made $2 and 13 cents an hour. Right. Yeah. So how did you afford to pay a server, you know, $12 an hour? How, how could you possibly do that? What happens is you reduce your turnover, your employee engagement goes up. So now you don't have that revolving door when you're paying people for doing their job and they feel seen, valued and heard, heard, it's amazing what goes out the door and how people show up that used to call off. So benefit costs went down. You know, the cost of health insurance went down. Why? Because they weren't calling out and they weren't getting sick and they weren't doing this and they weren't doing that. Um, they were showing up for their eight hour shift and they were crushing it. So it's, it's amazing what happens when you level the, the playing field and say to everyone, everyone is invited to the table and then set the table to the expectation and say, if you, if you want to rise to the occasion and take the opportunities, the opportunity is absolutely there for you. And so I know that was a really like long winded, I'm, I'm again, very passionate um, about that as well. So, sorry. No, no, you, you made an absolutely good point. 
And I, I mean, I've experienced this. I've been a superintendent. I've been, you know, a general foreman. I've been, you know, at the top of my game. And when I was, uh, three months out of apprenticeship school, I got, I went and, and became a superintendent, which was, you know, going from the very bottom to the very top of, of, you know, the ceiling of, of what I do. And what I noticed was, is that the more, the more you make, the less you do. Mm. literally the, the more you make it turns into your mind your mind thinking instead of physically doing yeah and, and it's more about the responsibility now you're getting paid yes. for responsibility instead of labor um yeah but that still doesn't uh doesn't equate to me yeah. um you know no, it, it comes to hard wiring yeah it, uh, to to your to your point and i think that you know the more people feel valued they feel like, um, so it was funny how much like in construction, how far a meal will go to a construction worker. Right. So you're on a job site, you know, you're, you're, you're working, you're doing what you're doing. Uh, and then, you know, the, the general contractor will have a big barbecue, invite everybody you know, to, to eat, have lunch, whatever. It's one meal. Mm-hmm. One meal that you probably could have went and bought for for five dollars yourself, mm-hmm. but it's it's more than that, you know. Mm-hmm. It's because your the production that you will get out of that five dollar meal across the board from everybody because they feel like you've taken the time to acknowledge their work and yeah. their their sacrifice and their labor and and everything else. The the returns you get on it way outweigh the the amount that that little small barbecue cost you. You're absolutely right. And and unfortunately, a lot of owners don't don't get that uh to your point. They feel like it's not their responsibility to do that. You know, they give you a paycheck. And and I say that in in terms of they give you, you know, a paycheck. That's why we hired you. That's why we pay you. But you're right. The seen, valued and heard comes on all kinds of different levels. Um, even outside of the monetary level, uh, the pat on the back goes a long ways uh, to making a person feel included, truly included, that we're not only glad you're here, we couldn't do this without you. And, and again, to that, that reward, that recognition, that appreciation, um, it's really the basics of being a human. And somewhere along the way, a lot of people have forgotten those things, those very simple things, which brings me back to those are some of the elements inside of my first book, The Connection, is that that seen, valued, and heard, our need for connection on many levels exists inside of all of us, and we all kind of tap into it in different ways. You know, people talk about the extrovert, the introvert. You know, everybody who's going through the pandemic now is feeling it in different ways because we're all hardwired differently, and we all need things differently. It doesn't mean that just because I'm upset that I'm extroverted and that's why I'm upset or that I'm introverted and I'm loving life because it's simply not true. Simply not true. So, And then that's where, as a leader, emotional intelligence comes into play because you have to know how to navigate your personnel because some people are introverted. Some people are extroverted. Some people are victims of their, you know, uh, we're yelled at as a kid and don't respond to that. And, yeah. you know, that stern type of uh, leadership that, you know, you know I'm going to just be a hard ass on you and get you to do what I need you to do. Well, it's not going to Yeah, really... maybe because it worked for them. They think it's that that whoever said what got you here isn't going to keep you here is so true. Yeah. I, I use um, 
uh, uh, to, to that comment, I use predictive index, which is a behavioral and a cognitive assessment that helps me lean into conversations with my clients and my employees and, and the emotional intelligence, the EQI, because you're right. You know, it's not enough to know who we are and our hardwiring, but we got to set that, set that aside because I'm trying to motivate Sean, not, not Shelly, you know, to this, to this point. So, um, and we're all different. We're all different. We're not robots. Yeah, and then I also got to know, you know, what Sean's strong points are. What, what, where, where, where does Sean excel in this company? Mm-hmm. What, what does he do really well that I can, I can, where I can put him, where he's going to be successful, where I can set him up to succeed instead of fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so yeah, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in, in, in that, and uh, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I, I like this conversation. I didn't think that it was gonna, I didn't, I didn't think it was gonna go here, but it, I like where it went. Cool. Well, good, good, good. Um, but just to one, 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 one thing to what you brought up, capitalism. I think, I think we live in selective capitalism because there's, oh, a, I, I agree. There's, a, there's a lot, there's a lot of socialism that's happening within the the capitalist. Yes. So it's, it's it's socialism for the rich, if you want to call yes. it that. And, yes. and we're we're gonna drop yes. that one right there. We'll leave it right there. Yeah, but, we'll we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there because <laughs> we can we can have a whole uh, podcast series on that, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Um, well, I want to thank you. We're at about 50 minutes. Uh, I want to go ahead and let you plug whatever it is you need to plug, uh, on your social media, your, uh, your, you know, wh- wherever people can find you. It's going to be in the show notes as well, but go ahead and voice it if you like. Yeah. Thank you so much. So I, I live on all the, I think all the social media, uh, platforms. I'm not on TikTok, however. Um, but you can find me on, uh, on LinkedIn under, uh, Shelly. Smith and Premier Rapport. I've got a business page and a personal page. I'm on Twitter uh, at Premier Rapport. And then I'm also on Facebook. I've got a couple of private groups that are on there. I've got, you know, a corporate membership for culture gurus and everybody who leans in inside of that. And of course, I'm on Instagram as well. So, and YouTube, I have a ton of YouTube videos and of course the two podcasts that we looked at. So my main website is Premier Rapport and that's P-R-E-M-I-E-R. And then R A P P O R T. That has a whole. There's a whole story behind that too. But anyway, it's premierreport.com. So I appreciate being on here today, and love to be able to answer any questions. I've got a ton of free stuff on my website. If people want to grab more on workplace culture, please feel free to go on and download anything you want. That's awesome, Shelly, man. I really appreciate your time and and stopping by and talking with me today. Uh, hang out, and uh, I will. After we sign off, I got a I got a couple things for you. You're listening to the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. Here's your host, Sean Dustin.